Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Now, in the last episode, I think I made a good case that Jesus in chapter 18 is talking about people with the lowest honor status who might stumble or wander off into illegal activity, and he's claiming them as his people, his little ones. But if you weren't convinced by what I said in that episode, it was mostly analysis. I didn't have a lot of evidence from translation and other sources, extra-biblical sources that show parallels or anything like that. It was mostly just analysis based on the larger book of Matthew, the larger story in Matthew. So maybe it wasn't convincing, but I hope that this episode, where I do have a little bit more evidence, that sort of evidence, I do hope that this episode will fill out the analysis and make it more clear. But if you have questions or observations that you want to share, please email me at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. That's subversivewisdom.com at gmail.com. Your questions and observations are not only welcome, but they will help me hone my own analysis and also help me communicate better, more clearly, help me know where I need to be more clear, or maybe even rethink my analysis of the text. So please email me if you have any questions or observations, subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Now, to understand the passage that we are looking at in this episode, which is an extension of the one in the last episode. I want to review something from those previous passages, those previous parts of the last episode, with some new information that I probably should have included in the last episode, but for various reasons did not. In the last episode, where we started at the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the new society? The Greek word for greatest that they use is mezon. And that's important because in response, Jesus shows them a child representing those with the least power and honor in the old society, and then refers to children and those with little honor and power as mikron, which is usually translated in this passage as little ones. But actually, it is the opposite of mezon, the greatest, so maybe should be translated the least, which is how it is translated in chapter 11, verse 11, when Jesus says that the least in the new society is greater than John the baptizer. So they ask who the greatest is in the new society, and Jesus shows them someone who is the least in the old society and uses a word that contrasts with greatest. And in addition to having already used this word to describe his followers in chapter 11 when comparing them to John the baptizer, Jesus also used it in chapter 10 to describe his followers. And in chapter 13, he used it to describe the mustard seed, a symbol for his message or the message of the new society. Here in chapter 18, it gets used three times to refer to people who seem to be his followers, but also at the same time are all those who occupy the lowest honor stratum of society. 
In verse 6, he refers to them as these little ones, or least ones, who believe in me, and warns his followers not to put stumbling blocks in their way. Then in verse 10, he says, not to despise them, and compares them to a wandering sheep. And then in verse 14, he says that God is not willing that any of them should be lost. These little ones or least ones are those who we need to watch out for and not trip them up with structures and practices that would alienate them and keep them marginalized. They are the wandering sheep who need to be brought back to the fold and rejoiced over. Jesus seems to be including in his movement all those who are at the lowest stratum of society, including those who are most likely to be alienated and wander off into criminal activity. Those are Jesus' people, his little ones, as many English translations render the word, or his least ones, which I think may be a better translation given the context. Needless to say, the current criminal justice system is not likely to work for them. So the movement is going to have to set up an alternative justice system. And that is what Jesus teaches about in the passage for this episode. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 47 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin with Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. As usual, I will read it from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. Don't always do that, but I usually do that, and that's what I'm doing right now. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, Take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, of course, since the NRSV, and to my knowledge, all other English translations, render the Greek word ekklesia, church, we immediately assume that Jesus is talking about the institution's that we know of as churches, and that he is prescribing a method of reconciliation for minor interpersonal disputes that might occur in one of our churches, but not anything that we might consider a legal matter, except maybe something that could turn into a legal matter if reconciliation in the church does not work. But nothing really serious, no major crimes, nothing like that. But churches as we know them today did not exist 
in the time of Matthew or Jesus. What did exist in the time of Matthew were small groups of Jesus followers trying to practice an alternative society within the larger dominant Greco-Roman world. And the term ecclesia was the word used in the Greco-Roman world, including in Roman Syria, the likely location in which Matthew was written. It was the word for the local assembly of free men who met to decide and adjudicate local matters. The analogous pre-70 Israelite institution would be the synagogue. Dennis Dooling, in his book, A Marginal Scribe, traces the process in this passage as drawing from Judean and Greco-Roman judicial proceedings. The great Jewish historian Josephus links the terms synagogue and ecclesia as legal assemblies that can function as courts even when they are not in Judea. He quotes a Roman official, Lucius Antonius, who appears to have made a ruling in favor of the Jews in Rome concerning their right to have their own ecclesia or assembly. Josephus, quoting Lucius Antonius, writes, Those Jews that are our fellow citizens of Rome came to me and demonstrated that they had an assembly, ecclesia, an assembly of their own according to the laws of their forefathers, and this from the beginning, as also a place of their own wherein they determined their suits and controversies with one another. Upon their petition, therefore, to me, that these might be lawful for them, I give order that these their privileges be preserved, and they be permitted to do accordingly. Josephus calls the synagogues in Rome ecclesias, that serve and should be recognized as legal courts. Sirach 23.24 uses the term ecclesia to refer to a body which appears to be the central assembly of a town or village that is acting as a judicial court. Also, when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven, that sounds to modern ears like something completely supernatural, something that occurs in heaven and maybe is supposed to manifest on earth in some supernatural event, such as a magical spell on an individual. However, to bind and to loose was the verbal formula used to describe authority wielded by the scribes who were part of the temple establishment. And this is a good case in point that can illustrate for us how there was little to no bifurcation in the ancient world between what we call supernatural, spiritual, miraculous, and the regular everyday world, especially the sociopolitical world. To bind and to loose was the legal and political authority held by the scribes, which was understood to originate in heaven. Here is how the Jewish Encyclopedia traces this language through both Jewish and Christian usage. This is from Jewish Encyclopedia. The power of binding and loosing was always claimed by the Pharisees. Under Queen Alexandra, the Pharisees, says Josephus, became the administrators of all public affairs so as to be empowered to banish and readmit whom they pleased, as well as to loose and to bind. This does not mean that, as learned men, they merely decided what, according to the law, was forbidden or allowed. 
but that they possessed and exercised the power of tying or untying a thing by the spell of their divine authority, just as they could, by the power vested in them, pronounce and revoke an anathema upon a person. The various schools had the power to bind and to loose, that is, to forbid and to permit. This power and authority vested in the rabbinical body of each age, or in the Sanhedrin, received its ratification and final sanction from the celestial court of justice. And then the Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to talk about how the language of binding and loosing is used in the passage we are looking at in this episode, in Matthew 18. Jewish Encyclopedia continues, In this sense, Jesus, when appointing his disciples to be his successors, used the familiar formula. By these words, he virtually invested them with the same authority as that which he found belonging to the scribes and Pharisees. So what Jesus is talking about in this passage is legal authority in the new society, corroborated in heaven, and a process by which people can be reconciled, or if that fails, punished by banishment, a nonviolent alternative to forms of punishment such as flogging or stoning. Now, banishment was already a form of punishment that was used in Israel. It is one of the primary meanings of the power to bind and to loose. But Jesus prescribes it as the only punishment, ruling out all violent forms of punishment. So this is a legal process for the new society that prioritizes reconciliation and punishes only if reconciliation fails, doing so nonviolently. Additionally, legal power is democratized in this process because the power that in the old society was invested in the scribes, Jesus invests in the whole community. I hope that makes sense so far, but maybe you're saying, what about those last two verses? The last two verses read, Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now that sounds to our ears, especially the way it is translated, as if Jesus is telling his disciples that God will grant every wish that they may have as long as two of them agree on what they're asking for. And this understanding of these verses has rendered these verses a proof text for a lot of crazy prosperity theology, name it and claim it teaching by televangelist hucksters. But the language being used here is still legal language. The whole thing about having two or three agreeing, which repeats step two in the process just mentioned of having two or three witnesses, goes back to the Judean legal precedent of needing two or three witnesses to establish a case. Deuteronomy 19.15 states, A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. Also, when the NRSV translates Jesus as saying, If two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, that makes it sound wide open as if the two are agreeing about literally anything they want. But the word that is rendered anything is a Greek word that can mean 
a legal case and is used that way by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.1 when he says, when any of you has a case against another, do you dare take it to the court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? So Jesus is not talking about two people agreeing about just anything they want, but rather agreeing as witnesses on a case. Now, this may seem a little extreme to say that two or three people can act as the deciding witnesses on any case, but Jesus seems to be using hyperbole again to emphasize the legal authority that he is investing in the community. He rhetorically exclaims that any two or three of them have the authority that, in the old society, is reserved for the ruling class scribes. In the old society, the scribes are believed to have the authority that comes from heaven to decide cases. Whereas Jesus says that in the new society, in the kingdom of heaven, any two or three common people have that authority. Whatever they say will be honored by their Father in heaven, and Jesus himself will be there in the midst of them. Jesus isn't just teaching, he's preaching. And in preaching, you have to listen to the rhetorical emphasis. Jesus is telling them, that they can have their own criminal justice system. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, they don't have to rely on the criminal justice system of the old society. The rhetorical weight is on who has the power and authority to adjudicate cases. Jesus tells them with a highly emotional and rhetorical speech that they, the community, in fact, just two or three of them, have that power. And then notice the irony that he slips into what he is saying. He says that the ultimate punishment for someone who does not repent of their crime is to be treated as a Gentile or tax collector. Well, how has Jesus been treating Gentiles and tax collectors? He's been calling them to follow him and be part of the movement. They are his people too. The emphasis stays on reconciliation. Those with the least power and authority in the old society, including those who stumble or wander into criminal activity, are his people, the little ones who believe in him, and those who get banished in the new society. They also are his people. For as he says in verse 14, God is not willing that any of them should be lost. The new society should seek after them as a shepherd would leave the 99 to seek after the one lost sheep. Those whom we tend to consider lost, most difficult, they are Jesus' people. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please support this podcast by spreading the word. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your cat and dog. As I've said before, your cat probably won't care, but your dog might. And tell everyone you can, put this on social media, share it on social media. Give us five-star ratings and glowing reviews. That draws people to the podcast. If you want to support the podcast financially, you can do that through PayPal by sending it to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also send any questions or comments or observations or secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops, you can send all of that to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. 
This has been episode 47 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you.